we're the most accomplished age group, you know, in our 50s. We've done so much. We've looked after our children. They're growing up. We've done so well. We've done so many things. We are the experienced ones. Yeah. And we're the capable ones. We're the multitaskers. Hi, I'm Joe Clark, and thanks so much for joining me today. This is a Redefining Midlife podcast, a podcast designed for the 40-plus woman who is determined to challenge society's myths and beliefs around midlife. It's for the woman who is inspired and ready to define midlife her way. Join me each week as I chat to health and wellness experts for up-to-date information on how to live well, as well as some special conversations with incredible everyday women redefining what midlife can look like. Here's to making our next half of life even better than the first. Today, you'll be meeting the incredible Kirsty Smolensky. Now, she's a woman who has worn and continues to wear many hats. Wife, mum of five, nurse, businesswoman, community organiser and political candidate. And at the age of 56, Kirsty is also completing her law degree and beginning her nursing degree again. Now, she'll share more about that craziness during our chat. After hearing this quick snapshot about Kirsty, it's probably going to be easy for you to assume that she's always been an extroverted and ambitious woman. But as you'll hear, that wasn't always the case. Kirsty was very open during our chat and vulnerably shares the major turning points of her life that led her to course correct and change direction. Kirsty is a great example of don't just complain about it, do something about it, and be the change you want to see in life. And now that her five children have finished school, I just know that that extra time and space will mean that Kirsty's life will be ramping up rather than slowing down. For me, that is so inspiring and motivating and shows once again that you're never too old and it's never too late to redefine your life. You can find all the links to Kirsty in the show notes. But before we begin today's episode, I'd love to quickly send a very big thank you to the listeners who have recently rated the podcast. Gosh, it really does help the podcast to grow and reach more listeners who are just like you. And an extra big thank you to Mrs. P who left a review on Apple Podcasts saying, Joe loved this episode on how to move forward when your baby chicks leave the nest. You made me realize that life doesn't stop because our kids no longer define who we are but how exciting to have the opportunity to explore a new you. I so agree with you, Mrs. P. Now it's time for me to introduce you to the lovely Kirsty Smolensky and her special story. Welcome to the Redefining Midlife podcast, Kirsty. It is so lovely to have you on as a guest to share your midlife journey with us. Oh, thank you, Joe. And it's so exciting to be here. <laughs> and is it, this is your first podcast? It is. It is. Mm. Oh, I love new that. learning experience. Eh, well, why not do something new? Exactly. <laughs> now, in full disclosure to the listeners, I've known you for probably well over a dozen years now through meeting you at my daughter's boarding school. And in that time, I've seen you wear so many hats and take on lots of different roles. And it's done completely with competence, with confidence and with grace. So I just want to acknowledge that as well, Kirst. So no, from an outsider's perspective, uh, you've always had a strong social conscience and a drive to create change to make positive difference for others. Now, were you like that as a young girl at school? Oh, gosh, no, absolutely <laughs> not. And, and I think that this is where 
um, something like this and getting that reflection back from you, and I've certainly had that in the last few years, has made me go back and finding it confusing myself because I was actually one of the shyest kids that um, you could ever come across. You know, someone new walking into the room, I would be behind my parents' legs. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't stand that. I was very shy. I had no self-confidence. I was very friendly. I loved people, but I had no confidence in myself. Everyone I felt was better than I was. You know, the girls were prettier. They were smarter. That was just not my lot in life. Yeah, for a long time. Mm. So when did you start to notice a change? Oh, wow. Well, I probably didn't really even notice the change. I think other people noticed it, especially my family. Um, probably leaving school. Um, I did go down to boarding school. That was incredibly confronting, but I I loved it. I loved the newness. I loved the the different friends and 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 finding people from all over, you know, parts of Victoria and 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 southern New South Wales that I'd you know, I didn't really know existed. And uh, I found that, yeah, and the friends and the parties. Yeah, I became a bit of a easily led uh, party girl. <laughs> so, um, I, I loved my school years for that. Yeah. School, I felt, I found difficult. I worked so hard, uh, but I've always found um, academics, schooling difficult. And again, I just, you know, wouldn't get the marks. You know, those things just weren't for me. Yeah, and then leaving school, going into a share house in in Melbourne, that was and starting my nursing where you just had to walk into a room where you knew nobody um really yeah i found a yeah i found a confidence probably not a self-confidence i i masked that really well mm, for a long time still beyond that mm. is that right so it, it's it's really interesting how it's progressed mm. and do you see that in any of your children i do in perhaps one, I go back, I look at them and I've always taught them the things that perhaps I wish I was taught that, you know, to really love yourself. There's, you know, you're, you're as good as anybody. Um, you know, there's absolutely no need for nerves or to be shy or anything because we're all the same. You know, no one's better. They might think they're better, but they're not. We're all the same. And I say that to my kids and my kids of all, you know, they've, They've grown up with a self-belief and a self-confidence that, you know, I wished I had as as a child. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it, it's very interesting to look back and see. And the one who I believe um, does lack the self-confidence and the self-belief, she's probably the most like me. And very interestingly enough, in her early 20s, we're going down that path of, ADHD and I believe that that was myself in an inability to concentrate and an inability to comprehend like others do you believe that you're not as good academically you believe that you're not as smart um, it's yeah and that's now a, another journey for me to be going through especially with women because women's sort of portrayal, how they display an ADHD is incredibly different to men. Yes. And we've just got men 
role models, really. Mm. You know, we talk about boys with ADHD and yeah, it, for women, for girls, it's very, very different. So I believe that that was significant for me as a child. Mm. And I've just had to work through that myself and work out that, you know what, I'm not, I'm not silly. Just because I can't spell properly doesn't mean that I'm stupid. No. Uh, yeah. So, and especially at boarding school, you know, I'd write letters home and I'd get letters back with big red marks on them with all the spelling mistakes. Yeah. So actually I stopped writing home because I didn't like receiving them back yeah. with the pointing out that I couldn't spell. I still can't spell Joe. I'm still, I'm still terrible at spelling. Terrible. And it's and taken I bet you me hear that voice all the time. I do. I do. And people pick it up on my social media. Ha ha, you can't even spell this or what have you. And it's taken me until I'm 56 years old to say that is not a measure of my intelligence. And we we need to do something about this. Mm. Mm. And I love grammar. <laughs> it's <laughs> everyone's best friend <laughs> so because like confidence aside that was something that mm. took a bit mm. of a and and like with most teenagers it does but you also had obvious signs of neurodivergence as well but were mm. you ambitious as a teenager did you sort of have a, a burning ambition even when, when you went to Melbourne no. okay that's interesting no, no, no. I was a dreamer I was an absolute dreamer which is very different from yeah. ambition I would have loved to be all these sorts of people, but I that was just a dream for me in those in those days. And I wanted, you know, so my grandmother was a pharmacist and she was one of the um, first female pharmacists to go through the Victorian College of Pharmacy. And she was my absolute role model. We were very alike. And I, I spent hours talking to her. And as a child, she used to take me over to the Shepherd at the Goulburn Valley Base Hospital when she'd be babysitting me and into the pharmacy, into the dispensary in the hospital pharmacy. And she gave me a job and I'd count out iron tablets into the bottles of 20 to give out to patients. Like, imagine that. <laughs> and, um, so I wanted to be a pharmacist. Yeah. But I also felt from a very early age that I'd never get the marks at university to be a pharmacist. And my sister, my older sister, did. And I was very happy for her. And I thought, that's that's great. At least you're keeping that, that family thing going because my great-grandfather was a pharmacist and my great-great-grandfather was also a pharmacist. Mm. And um, But I knew that that was not for me. I think my wildest dream was to be a doctor. Or, or something, um, you know, more challenging, but yeah, was never going to happen for me. So that's probably why I, you know, I was told by my family, oh, just do, you know, nursing or or teaching. That's what women do. Mm. And so I, I, I put nursing on my list when I finished grade twelve, and and I actually cried the day that I got accepted. Um, very unexpected. I remember it very well. I was in my father's supermarket working and he gave me the letter from, you know, wh whoever it was in those days. And, and I looked at it and I'd, be, I'd been accepted into nursing um, at the Tribe University in Melbourne. And I cried thinking that's, that's my lot in life. And I don't even know whether that's 
what I want to do. Yeah, um, I felt like it was nearly the end of my my dreams. Mm. Um, so yeah, mm. it was it was very very interesting. Yeah, and I found my training difficult. Mm. We were university trained. We were the first non-hospital. Everyone was against us. The okay. community, the the nurses, the hospital trained nurses, the students, everyone was against us. Oh, hospital trained. Oh, you yeah, know. I remember that time be... actually, Kirst. Oh. I remember because I, like I studied in, in Toowoomba at USQ. Oh, back then mm. it was DDIAE. But that's yeah, when we yeah. started nursing as well. And that was, you know, yeah. away from the hospital trained and into yeah. there and, and what the people's opinions yeah. were. Yeah, yeah, very, very strong, you know, close family friends still. Oh, oh, I'd never do that. I'd still do it in the hospital. You know, I can just oh, okay. hear them now. And then going into clinical, I remember in second year going into, you know, our clinical situation at the Royal Melbourne, uh, we were the worst of the worst. Um, it was It was very difficult and I thought, why am I doing this? Mm. Um, I don't like these people. I don't like what they're doing. They don't like me. Why do I want to work with them? Uh, and I, I, I got to the stage that I almost quit at the end of second year. Um, and funnily enough, it was one of my clinical teachers who said to me, oh, Kirsty, I think you'd just be better off being a, an enrolled nurse. You know, you, you can't do this. And I thought, you know what? Stuff you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was and, a um, in the belly that you might have needed. Yeah? I think so, you know, and I thought, you know what? I might be this and I might be that, but I am no quitter and I can do this. Yeah. And and perhaps, Joe, that was a bit of a turning point for me. And I did finish and I took my badge well we were all given badges in those days and I threw it away and I went to my first agency job as a registered nurse back at the Royal Melbourne and I thought I'm not telling one of you where I've trained if you ask I'll, I'll lie if I have to um, but I can do this I'm a good nurse I don't care what you say and off I went yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, what was your own past like cursed Given that, what was, you, that what was your early career path like? Um, as in, where did you go after that? Did you stay for some time in Melbourne? I, I stayed for six months in Melbourne working with a nursing agency. So going to all different hospitals all over Melbourne. I said no to nothing. So I, I did a, a lot at um, the Royal Melbourne, the Prince Alfred, um, Prince Henry's in those days. Uh -huh. uh, and it was, I learned so much and, and I was very grateful for that time because you're literally thrown into the deep end. And uh, I met my first refugee, Vietnamese refugee there. That's also a very defining moment in my life. He couldn't speak English. He was in a big public hospital. N no one could really communicate with him. And I, I tried hard and I got this amazing story from him. He was a he was a boat, you know, refugee. He was, um, you know, in those early days, in the probably in the seventies, he'd come across. I, I can't recall, but uh, very defining moment in my life. 
and coming from a small country town. But, but then I went to Shepparton, Goulburn Valley base for my grad year and spent a year there again batting off the oh you're a hospital uh, you're a university trained you won't be able to you know do anything yeah. increased that fire in my belly I suppose Joe. I did that for a year and then I a, a couple of girlfriends and I landed at the Toowoomba base hospital wanting to you know see the see the world let's see Australia first yeah and uh, landed in Toowoomba um, got jobs within the hour, you know, basically, <laughs> can you start tomorrow? <laughs> no joke, no joke. Yeah, That's yeah. exactly um, what the director of nursing basically said to me in my interview. And another year there and then, again, more confidence and and left to, to for London, left for overseas. Okay. Mm. And did you work as a nurse in London or did you? I did. I did. I got my got my UK registration. And again, another girlfriend was over there. Yeah. And there were a few of us coming and going. And we both got our UK registrations. And I worked for an agency again in central London, wow. working in big, big, busy yeah. London hospitals. Uh, it it was fabulous. I, I loved every every bit and then we'd travel on our on our days off and a few weeks here and there and I think I really grew then as a person I felt confident with knowing what I was doing I, yes. I felt like I was um a, you know working in my role as a registered nurse to the very you know the best I could and I felt that that was good and and getting a lot of feedback as well from oh you know, UK people loved Australian nurses. You know, I, we were sought after because right. of our knowledge and our hard work. This is what they tell us. Yes. And our approach to people, we were very sought after. Mm, I loved it. So what brought you back to Australia mm. then? Was it just the visa time it ran out? Well, well that, that I could have I could have stayed um, having a grandparent who was English, I could have applied, I could have stayed. My parents came to visit me after I'd been away for over two years and I thought, oh, oh my, it just sort of jolted me back to reality. I thought, oh, my goodness, you're looking old. Like, <laughs> I must have been away a long time. And and I, I started to miss Australia, whereas I hadn't before. And I I thought, you know what, it's it's time to come home. And so I did. So I came home at the end of 1993 to Melbourne, started working in Melbourne again with an agency, started studying then as well, um, wanted to do my midwifery. And then it got cold, Joe. And then, um, you know, in you May. You spent two in, years in London, for God's sake. I know. But I think I was loving, and I probably had itchy feet as well. Uh, yeah. I was loving the heat. And then all of a sudden it got cold and I thought, I'm not doing this. I'm not living in Melbourne back as a student. I was. You had to do midwifery then through the university. So I was back to being a student. I was broke. I had this tiny little... 1974 Chrysler Galant that was brown with a black vinyl roof. Um, the Speedo was in miles. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I I thought, you know what, I'm broke. <laughs> I'm a student. 
I'm cold. I'm living in this tiny little terrace house. And at the time, the Toowoomba Base Hospital was still doing um, nursing training in the hospital. And they were also offering a course and it was called the Rural and Remote Course. And they employed you full-time as a registered nurse. And at the end of it, you would come out qualified as with accident and emergency certificate, midwifery and ICU. Mm -hmm. And I was doing a lot of work in ICU and I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to do. So I came back to Toowoomba. I got some accommodation, hospital accommodation. I started that course and I then met my husband. Mm. So I, I, didn't, um, I didn't do it because that was the last thing I wanted to do was go out rural and remote and, yeah, and let yes. this gorgeous person yes. that I'd just met. Uh, back out in in you know in Toowoomba mm. wow okay so after meeting Paul you obviously you, you're a mum or parents to five children so yes yes Wood yes. was obviously fairly strong on the the list of well Joe, that's really interesting as well because no um <laughs> another another rabbit hole sorry um <laughs> I did not think I could have children oh is that right wow yeah, right and because I was very thin. I was a very skinny kid and, and that sort of, I, I filled out a bit in, in high school and then in uni life, but I, I rarely menstruated. So I, merely, I rarely had a period. I could go for years. And uh, the whole, nearly the whole time I was overseas, I, I, I didn't have a period. So when I met Paul, and we discussed this with family and my sister, and when I met Paul, you know, I did say to him, and our relationship was serious, um, I said, you know what, I, I possibly can't have children. I, I, I don't ovulate, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And he sort of said, oh, well, that's, that's that how it is. That's okay with me, you know. Um, okay. So then when we decided to get married, I went on the pill because I thought, well, you know, I probably need to be careful anyway. And my sister had lined up to give us eggs. And not that I really knew that I wanted to do that, but that was how, you know, that's the, how the conversation was. So when we got married, I went off the pill whenever that cycle finished in the weeks before we were married. And then I came home from our honeymoon in Thailand pregnant. So. Go you. <laughs> You had ambitious ovaries after all. Look at that. And again, Joe, I cried. <laughs> I remember sitting in the kitchen um, of our little wow. house that I bought in Toowoomba and seeing the stick and thinking, oh, I'm pregnant. I'm so not ready for this. I thought oh. this would take years and years um, and perhaps we would adopt when we were ready. And Eliza was born nine months later, as Paul would say, made in Thailand. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we were, I had the, had a child the same 12 month year that we were married. Very funny, very funny. And then um, thinking that she was a freak of nature, uh, we, we tried again fairly soon and I actually lost that child. And that confirmed my fears that there was something 
very quite wrong with with my ability to to reproduce and that Eliza was perhaps a, a real freak of nature yeah. and and so then actually got pregnant with Gillian very quickly after that mm. so that was confusing nearly all of a sudden we had two children and oh, yeah maybe maybe we should um you know while the going's hot you know and I'm I'm 30 something because I didn't get married till I was 31 that was also mm. against mm. us and all of a sudden 18 months later we had Rosie and no okay so I had three beautiful little perfect baby girls and okay now I've worked out that nothing's <laughs> wrong with yeah. me mm. and when Rosie was born my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and which was incredibly traumatic mm. and I moved back down after the disease progressed to Victoria to nurse him at home so he could die at home I'd been I'd been doing palliative care I was a palliative care nurse then at St Vincent's and um, he just wanted to die at home so I said I'll do that for you so I went I took Rosie Paul had the other two girls at home I took Rosie as then probably a 10 month old and went back home the doctors were really good. We, I took him home from the palliative care unit in Melbourne. We set him up in his bedroom with his drip, with his little subcutaneous um, needle for morphine, with his nasogastric tube, um, probably getting a bit technical now, but he couldn't, anything he ate, he would vomit up. But he loved a beer. So I'd say, no worries, Dad, go hard, drink a beer with your mates, which he'd sit out there and drink a beer. And I would aspirate it oh, out of the gastric tube yeah. on the side. So he then didn't bring that up. So he could yeah. actually sit there with everything else going on and have a beer with his mates. And I was giving him, you know, fourth hourly morphine, fentanyl patches. It, he basically wasted away. And he died, I could look after him um, and he did die at home. Um, he only became unconscious the, the morning that he, he died. So I could still do all his cares. He could roll over. I could, you know, do his, shave him and clean his teeth and, mm. and he could go to the bathroom and until the morning that he died. And, and yeah, so we were able to then, I could recognise that, that, okay, mm. this was it. And we were able to get all the family and he was able to be at his bedroom, in his bedroom at home mm. with all the, the family. That's yeah, a so, gift, isn't it, to, to do that to um, somebody? It, it was the most extraordinary gift, Joe. Um, something that I still feel just so incredibly grateful that mm. I was able to do that for, and not just my father, but for my family yes and that they could be there I I didn't realize at the time the toll that it had taken on on me personally we moved back up to when it was all done and dusted moved back to Queen. Paul had come down with the other two children for the last few weeks so that was we were all there together mm. uh, came back to Queensland and I think you know a few months later, about six months later, I said to Paul, I'm, I'm not over it. I'm depressed 
or sad. I need something really good in my life. I think I need another baby. <laughs> and, and Paul's like, what? <laughs> and, um, and I said, look, you know, I just, yeah, I just, I feel like we need another baby. Yeah. And, um, and so we tried and it didn't happen. And I thought, you know what, I'm too old. I'm 38 or whatever I was. And yeah, that's okay. And Paul had actually done some research into how you get boys and girls. So he'd stopped wearing underpants because apparently cooler testicles yes, are better for it. producing boys. Yeah. And he felt being a tradie, being a builder outside, you know, being hot and sweaty, that's why we had girls. We had Fred and I was shocked out of my skin when he was born thinking we'd have four beautiful daughters. You know, that'd be, you know, that'd be perfect. Yeah. It's Fred. And I, I said to the obstetrician at the time, because we didn't ever find out, um, I said, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> and he said, Kirsty, I've seen this a few times. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and it was Fred. And I immediately, Joe, thought, oh, my goodness, that poor little boy, what have we done? He's got these three beautiful sisters who all play together you know, do everything together. And now I've got Fred, that poor little boy. He's he's going to be spoilt. He's going to be lonely. He's a couple of years younger. Um, wow, what have I done? He has to have a brother. And again, again, oh. Paul's so, so you threw all of Paul's undies out again? <laughs> exactly. And I said, look, I'm 39 years old. It won't happen, but I need to try. You regret what you don't yeah. do in life. Yeah. I need to try. I know that. And even if it's a little girl, Fred, it'll be beautiful. They'll be close in age and Fred won't be the youngest and the only boy. And poor old Paul, um, you know, he's just, okay. <laughs> Different conversation to the one that you had prior to being married. It, it was. <laughs> and, and I bought myself a little ovulation kit where oh. you can it's about saliva you lick it and when it dries you look through this little microscope thing and you see that you ovulate uh -huh. um, I didn't believe it until I saw it it was you buy them from the chemist um and it I rang him at work it's time now <laughs> <laughs> and two weeks later I was pregnant Wow. Yeah, um, thinking that that would never happen at 39. Yeah. And again, I didn't cry, but I thought, what have I done? You are not in the right mind. You're now going to have your fifth child at 39. Your poor husband's 41 or 42. Um, and along came George. Holy. Gorgeous George, George the fifth, ten pounds five. Oh dear he, God, first. Dear God, yeah. Oh, holy, he's the one that I needed to. He, I needed George to pull me up. <laughs> <laughs> Job done. Job done. Job and just you before he was even born. <laughs> the funniest thing um, was when they 
handed him to me. And again, I've gone down a rabbit hole. I'm so sorry. No, and, no, I love it. Um, the the thing was when they after that birth where Paul says it was like um, you know, someone trying to pull a calf, you know, when you get the chains yes. on and yes. get it hitch yes. it to the tractor and pull it out. He he said, you know, that obstetrician certainly had his work cut out trying to get George out and I don't know where my mind was. They're not there. I was oh, elsewhere. Oh, darling. Yep. And um, when they then handed him to me in my probably near delirium, I looked at him and I said, you little shit. And they very quickly <laughs> took him back out of my arms. You can imagine the midwife, oh, I'll just hang on to this dear child for a while. <laughs> so oh. so George has grown up knowing that he was a very very large baby with a very very large head and his <laughs> first words from his dear mother were you little, little shit, shit. Oh, mm. yes. yeah yeah so mm. uh yeah funny we we had all those conversations you know <sighs> one of the wardies at the time said to said to Paul oh he's going to be a front rower and Paul said to him, what makes you think it's a boy? And this poor Wardy nearly I said, Paul, stop it. He's definitely a boy. I mean, look how ugly that is. No girl. <laughs> so so straight away did Paul go in and, and uh, have a vasectomy? Was he not willing it to risk actually, his wife? <laughs> it was actually... I got a bit, when George was about six months old, <laughs> I got this gastritis. I knew it was a gastritis. I was so nauseous and so ill that um, I, I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't drink anything. And Paul came in and said, what, what can I do? You know, what, what can I get you? And I said, just go to the shop, get me some Lucozade or some lemonade I, and some Mylanta, I don't know. Anyway, went down to the shop and he ran into a dear friend of ours who said to him, Paul, what's wrong? You look terrible. And he got tears in his eyes and he said to Emma, I think Gertie's pregnant, but she's not telling me. And she's so... <laughs> and Emma's like, calm down, calm down. We're in public place. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> Anyway, he did go and book himself in for a vasectomy straight away. He got the biggest shock of his life. I was not pregnant, Joe. No, I had oh, gastritis. But he was wow. he was it frightened the living daylights out of me. I bet it did. <laughs> oh my God. Now so you you've got five children now. Were you nursing? Mm. Did you fit in any of your professional career during all I, of this time as well? Kurt? I did. I did. Wow. So um I, after Eliza, I I I had plans to go back at that time. I was in a charge position on the medical oncology, so cancer care, palliative care um, unit at St Vincent's Hospital here in Toowoomba. I loved my job. I loved it. Had Eliza, planned to go back in 10 weeks. As a lot of us, you know, new mothers will realise that, no, that is not going to happen. I'm not leaving this child. Mm -hmm. And I had a year off. I then went back while I was you know, pregnant with then Gillian, went back after Gillian. When I, before I had Rosie, I was asked um, by the university, USQ at that stage, to be a, um, if I would 
consider being a clinical facilitator. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said, absolutely. So I went and worked um, as a clinical facilitator at USQ, taking first year nursing students into their first placements, having full knowledge what I copped as a okay. student and full belief that I was going to make a huge difference to these kids' careers. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. I didn't do it for long because then I was quickly pregnant with Rosie. Yeah. But I do remember being very, very pregnant with Rosie, you know, in the in the shower with with one of our residents, you know, with a student, still me trying to, you know, tell them this is how it's done. And this poor student thinking, please don't give birth on the board. <laughs> yeah. And, and then after Rosie was born, having those three children quite close together, uh, that was the, yeah, that was the end I felt of my nursing career for a long while. Yeah. And then, see, then that's when my father got sick. Ah, gotcha. And so that's when I did that. And then coming back, going back to palliative care for someone else was, I didn't feel I could do that. Mm. Um, I was... It had affected me, as I said, and then I got pregnant with Fred. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. And I thought, I'm, I'm never going to get back to it. I, I did a bookkeeping course at TAFE so I could run Paul's business and be flexible with all the children. Yes, yeah. and that's what I did. I took on all his books and and basically uh, managed his business. So, mm. Kirst, when did you start to study law? Because we. Yeah. In 2017, okay. so I I basically threw myself into after George was born and even before then. So he was born in 2006. Mm -hmm. um, I then became incredibly involved with the schools and PNF. That would have been mm -hmm. the time that I yes. met you, Joe, and quickly became you know secretary and spring fair convener and social convener and and really just kept saying yes to the positions that couldn't be filled and by that stage I was like oh I can do that yes I can do that no that's you know really and I'm really grateful for the person who actually asked me to become the secretary of the Fair Home PNF because I don't think I would have put my hand up for that just willy-nilly uh, but I was invited and I thought yeah I can I, I can do that. And, and it was such a, an amazing experience. And so Paul was building and selling. We were, that was his own business. We were engaging with real estate agents as well as part of, as part of our business of building and selling. And then I felt, well, I can do that too. You know, why don't oh, I take on this? <laughs> so, yeah. So this did yeah. sort of happen gradually, I suppose. Yes. And um, I thought, well, I'll do that too. That I can fit that in as part of our business. I'll, I'll sell the real estate. So I did my real estate course. I, I got my license. I went to work with Century 21 um, with Sam Marsden here in Toowoomba. And those first, probably the first year, because it was all new uh, and I was very busy. I loved it, but probably a bit too busy with all the kids. Mm. And, and it is all consuming selling real estate is all consuming it's seven days a week people don't realize just how hard real estate agents work and I took on jobs for friends and other people who I knew and then I, that sort of grew and I decided that no that wasn't 
for me, if anything, I needed to have my own business so I could just do what I wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started up my own little business probably in 2016 and worked out very, very quickly that I was not a home alone work in the home office person. I, I missed that being out with, you know, working with other people, mm. even though I was with clients all the time. Yeah. I worked out that that wasn't me and that, you know, okay, what do I do now? You know, I've got to this stage in my, in my life that kids are growing up. Paul's talking about, um, not doing it anymore and maybe getting a job as a supervisor because running your own building business is incredibly difficult, yeah, incredibly yeah. difficult. It's fraught with danger. Yeah. And as we know now, you know, we can see the aftermath and so many builders have gone broke and um, it's, it's, it is fraught with danger. So I thought, you know, maybe it's time and that little person from my school days came back you know with my dreams of not just being a, a doctor but you know I, I I liked the idea of law politics accounting um I had a lot of role models in my head from those days and I thought you know what I completely discounted law even though it fascinated me because I didn't think I was smart enough so you know what I'm going to apply for my 50th birthday present. I'm going to apply. And I did, and I was accepted. And again, I didn't cry, but I nearly fell over backwards. Like, how are they accepting a 49-year-old girl who hasn't studied mm. since the 80s? Uh, wow, and off I went. <laughs> Good on you. And... Yeah, I, I had a computer, obviously, and with real estate and what I'd been doing, uh, you know, I had a, I had a good, you know, way around with, with, with words and, and writing, you know, letters and, and using the computer and word docs. And um, I wasn't incredibly green. I, my kids did have to teach me, you know, times two spacing and margins <laughs> and, you know. Gravelly. <laughs> so during that time as well, then, Kirsty, so you're studying your law. Mm -hmm. You you've also run for local council and as an independent in the last federal election. So yeah, yeah. Yep. And what um, have all of so, that experience taught you about politics and yourself during this time? Oh, well, it's such a huge learning curve, and and I suppose, Joe, from now um, we can really look back and see that everything for me and, and for probably most people has been a steep learning curve. And for me in those initial school years and having to, you know, sink or swim mm. after, after school and then with my nursing and then I suppose with, with my real estate and PNF really just working hard to get the job done and learning so many things about the community because we were so engaged with the children and everything that they were doing sport music you know their different schools we were we were there we were everywhere and um learning all the time about this community also with our building learning the flaws and then starting law 
and realizing the you know the the legal side of it and the boundaries and what's wrong with our society what I felt were the hurdles so many hurdles in our society I felt this needs to be changed again I was just putting my hand up if mm. if we need you know we need help we need counsellors on council who know the community who know what they're doing and people who are here to facilitate change for the better not just because mum or dad's been famous or because I want a job because I can't do anything else and I'm not being critical of the ones who are there but I felt we needed change and I felt we needed progressive change and we needed it quickly um, and that was it all sort of came together with me running for election for the Toowoomba Regional Council in in 2020 um, with having all of that experience and knowledge mm. just you know and me realizing that I you know I can do this yeah I'm not I'm not silly I'm actually yeah. doing a law degree you know I'm I'm not silly I can do this why not me yeah. and that was where that began and then COVID hit mm. so we were all shut down we couldn't really uh we we couldn't campaign and I loved campaigning I loved you know meeting the people and hearing what they had to say that all shut down and and look the incumbents and a few others who had spent you know 10 times more than me were elected and that was also a very very steep learning curve for me when I realized just how much money you needed to spend to be elected and again Joe, I'm thinking women breadwinners and not just that how many capable people are out there who haven't got fifty thousand yeah. dollars to spend on an election campaign is that nearly everybody mm. um so again opened up all these questions and flaws in our current political system led me to the realization that since federation groom had our member our local member had been a white male conservative yeah and i was really like what the heck yeah really we're better than this as a society where are all the women uh yeah and and off i went for the federal election as an independent yeah one we need to break the shackles we need to shine a light on groom because we're just in this forgotten conservative backwater and i'm not saying anything about the conservatives i'm talking about the the lack of change mm -hmm. the same conservative government you know representative every year which is why we don't attract the funding to our region yeah so that's yeah it, it just took me off on that next tangent of of need and and it's another steep learning curve and are here you, we are you in, yeah you're enjoying that you're enjoying i loved that. it yeah i loved every bit i i i devoured it and the more I learnt and the more I understood politics and the political process and 
how people are elected and why, just thought, no wonder, no wonder, no, you know, so many people don't have a good thing to say about politicians. You mm. can't trust a politician. They're all the same. No wonder, Joe. you know, we need to change this narrative. If we want good governance and our governance at a federal level, you know, comes from having, a, you know, someone on the ground who knows the community, understands the community and understands what the community needs. And we're not always getting that. Yeah. Because of the party system. Mm -hmm. It's very, you know, big corporate donations. Let's not even go there. Yeah. Let's start electing people who are the best for the job. Well, you live life with so much passion, Kirst, and for some, the thought, whole thought of, of politics would just about turn their blood cold. But for you, it's lighting another fire, isn't it? It's it's sort of lighting that fire again in your belly. Joe, that's actually been, and again, thank you for that self-reflection of me, and that has been said to me by other, a couple of other um, politicians in the past few years and that's been learning for me, like, yes, oh, my goodness, I hadn't even realised that, hadn't even realised it is like a fire in my belly. And the dirtier that they get, the more I say, bring it on. And the difference, again, between myself now and that small child could not be it could not be more different, Joe. Where where was the true me then? And that's where I come back. You know, perhaps I, you know, self confidence is a is a, is a thing with children. It is. Yeah. It is. And can't you see, like, as you get older too, that the confidence that grows with more experience that you've got, life experience. Yeah. And I've got a, a woman in the middle of life. If you've got to mm. throw in a little bit of men rage as well, Kirst, yeah, <laughs> I possibly have. <laughs> Those men better go running. <laughs> well, this is it. Um, Joe. when I was running for the federal election, I set up um, a stall at the local farmer's markets and I one older gentleman, I, I knew who, who he was, a stalwart of the, the Liberal Party in Toowoomba, has been for a long time, came along and, and introduced himself and, and said, oh, I congratulate you, nearly condescendingly, I congratulate you for what you're doing. A, a, a woman and an independent that's never been heard of in this region. And he said, I, I admire you and would possibly vote for you, except for this reg reason. And he pointed to Fred and George, my sons, who were sitting behind the table at the at the pop-up that we had. And I looked at Fred and George, who would have been um, maybe 16 and 17 at the time, maybe 15 and 17 at the time. And I said, boys, Fred, George, stand up for a minute, please. And at six foot five <laughs> and six foot three, despite them being, you know, teenagers, they both had to get out from under the pop-up to stand up. And I said to this man, these boys do not need me to wipe their bottom at the moment. 
and saying that they also have a father who can do that if need be. And he just walked away. <laughs> and I just thought that's what I'm up against. Yeah, yeah. Sexist. Yeah. You're a woman. You're older. You've got children. God forbid. You've got children. Get home and look after them. I just thought, wow, we man did that light a fire. That's probably the best best thing he could have said then. He might have been the gift that you needed. Another one. I I agree with you Mm. because it was a a spotlight on that part of the community and that's what I was able to address. Yeah. And then we're coming back to you and and what we're talking about here and, and, and your podcasts about women and women's um, health and wellness. And it all, it all ties in mm. where, you know, we're often told throughout our lives by certain people, get back to the, get yeah. back to the house. Yeah. And, and yeah. After you. Box, off you go. Yeah. And yet we're the most. Yeah. Oh, and yet we, they, you know, I consider now to be, you know, we're the most accomplished age group you know in our 50s we've done so much we've looked after our children they're growing up we've done so well we've done so many things we are the experienced ones yeah and we're the capable ones we're the multitaskers oh, that's what i was saying yeah. to another guest um on the podcast not long ago because it's almost like our our responsibility it was something that generations before us didn't have the opportunity that we've got now so to use our voice in a way to lift up others and to make change, I think if you've got that opportunity, and for me, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I've got that opportunity, then I see it as something that I should do. Not I could do, but I should do. Uh, Joe, when I started my campaign for federal um, politics, so as an independent, as an independent in groom, I read a quote or someone perhaps sent it to me, I can't remember, by, and I think it was, um, I think it's Helen McKellar. Now, I might be wrong there, but it, it, it was basically about saying, if you can, you should. Mm. And that's exactly what you've just said. Not everyone can stand up. Not everyone has a, has a strong voice or who, not everyone likes standing up in front of hundreds, thousands of people having that microphone and saying what you have to say that they couldn't think of anything worse Mm. but because you can yeah you should because then you're the voice for all those people who can't and certainly I had a lot of supporters through the campaign who were exactly that person they'd say I could never do what you're doing that I just it frightens me so much to think that I'd have to stand on a stage with a microphone in front of those people, media included, you know, I just want to support you because you can. And I realised then, Joe, that I actually enjoyed that. Give me the microphone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy it. Give me that big room full of people. I, yeah, I, I really, I really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah I'm with you with that <laughs> on that one. Yeah, look at you. Thousands <laughs> of people listening to what you have to say. Now, yeah, it's empowering. Up, it is empowering. It is empowering. Mm. Now, after seven mm. years of study and you graduate from law this year, mm-hmm. at the same Hopefully. time, you've got all of that in the background that we've just discussed. Yes, yes. 
you also have another hat that you've managed to to fit firmly on your head. You're also studying your nursing degree again. And I'll put that, and I'll say the word again, from scratch, again. even though you've already received that qualification years ago, all those years of practice in a hospital and as a nurse educator. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't mm -hmm. have much time left on the this episode, <laughs> but I'd love you just to, can you explain to the listeners why that is the case, why you have to study your nursing degree again? Well, I have to study it again because if you're if you're a registered nurse and you haven't been registered for 10 years then you lose everything you lose your qualification you lose your um so you can be you can keep your registration going if you want to mm. and not work well you have to do a minimum amount of work I'm not sure how many shifts per week that is and then you also need to be reading your journals and whatnot and and be proving to the registration board APRA that you can be re-registered year after year and it's quite expensive mm. and after three years of of doing that I felt that okay I, I, I can't do this anymore you know I'm too busy my life's gone on different tangent so I hadn't been registered for over 10 years so I've lost everything registration so if you do want to work as a nurse again you have to start from scratch so you may as well be a 17 year old finishing high school so no prior learning nothing a complete full degree once again I hadn't quite realized that when I started down that path of perhaps you know doing that working a bit of as a registered nurse as well and the more I delved into it the angrier I, I got Joe and yeah. another fire in my belly um, it's a it's a it's a profession dominated by women yeah. Joe immediately I felt that this was terrible it was some sort of discrimination um, surely this is not correct surely this is not necessary and so I, I applied, I got accepted. I, I did start at USQ while I deferred my law. I, I then needed to complete my law. So I transferred out to Central Queensland Uni. So that's how that happened. And I'm now working as an assistant in nursing as well as working for, for Roger Grieg as a, as a practice nurse. And it's, you know, the shortage in registered nurses you know that that fire just keeps growing we need registered nurses we the all of australia needs registered nurses we are so short joe it is crippling our health system in some circumstances and the universities just aren't filling the gaps for you know for whatever reason that is so i i believe that older experienced nurses like me should not be uh, barred from practicing mm. we should be enabled to get back into the profession and certainly the prospect of doing a three-year degree is prohibitive to most yeah. I, I've got to do weeks of unpaid clinical um, practice so again I feel that, well, I've got to complete this degree to actually have the knowledge to go back to 
APRA to go back to our government, whoever that will be at the time, and say, this is ridiculous. Mm. I've done it. I didn't need to do it. I haven't even worked for 20 years as a registered nurse, let alone 10. We need to change this. Mm. So that's part of my focus is that as well as really loving getting back into nursing. So I'm very torn now. I don't know what to do with something, hopefully with law and nursing, um, maybe in ethics I can, I can or education, because I love my education too. I, hopefully I'll be able to tie both in together. Yeah, but it's, it's a real another fire. No, this is something that is wrong yes, and needs to be is. changed for the benefit of Australia yes. and our health system. And yeah. as we, you know, growing older, you know, our population is growing older and, and our disease rate is also growing with obesity, diabetes, mm. you know, problem, renal problems, dementia. It's uh, the rate of dementia, cancer rates, some are falling, uh, others are growing. We need registered nurses on the ground and this is completely prohibitive for yeah. someone like me with my experience to, you know, be told, no, you start again with the with the 17-year-old straight out of school. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, it seems crazy. You could, you could imagine, I know some things would have changed 10, because it's a, it's a fast-growing area, but... That's there right. are so many things that would stay the same. The same. And Joe, that's exactly where I that's exactly my stance. So the medications have changed, the treatments have changed. We've got extra diagnosis, we've got different laws, we've had the royal commissions, there's different ways of doing things. On the other side of it, people haven't gone out and grown an extra arm. Mm. You know, I'm still nursing the same body in the same way with that care and compassion and everything that nurses do, yeah. which is critical thinking, assessment, planning. It's where we're nursing exactly the same way. We need a refresher. Mm-hmm. We need a, we need a, a paid, that's my opinion now coming out um, as my opinion. We need a, a paid refresher in yeah. a hospital for however many months to get us up to speed and and pay us as an assistant in nursing while we're doing it. And I feel that that would help the the, the nursing shortage a, a oh, great deal. To. What a wasted resource that we've just got sitting there that you can't use mm-hmm. and access. It yeah, just yeah. So yeah. we've talked, we've, some of the questions that I had to finish us off, we've basically covered a lot of those because I was, mm. you know, what are you looking forward to? Well, you've, you've told me so many different things that, you, that you're really looking forward to and you're wanting to do. There's lots of spot fires. I think Paul's going to have his, his extinguisher behind you everywhere you go, my friend. Can, you can, I, can I tell you that he's now building a, or renovating a house on Stradbroke Island? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, get me out of here. Yes, what advice would you give to another midlife woman? Oh, I mean that, that's broad, I know. What what oh, advice? Yeah, no, but 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 powerful that believe in yourself. Mm. Find your passion that has sometimes been buried behind all sorts of things from your might be your upbringing or you might have that little, you know, you might be neurologically diverse find your passion and draw on your experiences you know through that you've had through your life and bad experiences can teach us the best lessons mm. 
write them down, find what you're good at and have the self-belief that you are a very, very accomplished, powerful person and and you're very much needed in this world at the moment, very much needed. We are peaceful when we compare ourselves to, to males. You know, we are the peacemakers. We are the homemakers. We are the multitaskers and put us in those positions with all that experience and capability behind us. Go hard. Yeah. That's what you want. You Not do. everyone does. No, I mean, there's decades left for you to work on that, isn't it? That, yeah. That, that's, <laughs> I'm just starting, I'm really, Curtis? Yeah. It nearly, it's nearly like that. I'm, you know, turning 57 next month and I'm like, that's not long enough. No, no, I've got decades to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we really need to rethink it. That's why I call it redefining midlife because once upon a time, you know, you'd think, oh, 50s and 60s, that's when you wind down. And I'm thinking, no, that's when we've definitely, we can ramp up. We can be whatever we want it to be. Oh, with and Joe, how many minutes? Yes. And how many times are we told that though? And how many times are we told that now, even now with what I do, like, are you doing what, you know, why, you know, Mm. wouldn't you rather be retiring? No, No. I couldn't think of anything worse. Yeah. No, but I think that's nearly indoctrinated into us as women, but no, let's, let's, let's keep this going and, and empower more women to do the same. And one thing that I have learned and it hasn't happened to me and it, and, it, and it won't in my relationship but so many women give up their own careers Joe. when they have families they give up their careers I gave up mine to help mm-hmm. um, my to bring up my children and to work in my husband's business if something then happens to that relationship I would have been left with five children yeah after not being registered for 10 years without a qualification. Mm. I would like to give, um, you know, just speak to people younger than than me in their 20s and 30s and having children, consider not giving up your qualification. Just think about it because I think so many women do. The men continue on in their their job often Mm. after this breakup and it's one of the reasons that older women is the fastest growing demographic of homelessness in yeah. Australia it's a shocking statistic isn't it when you hear shocking mm. Mm. it is mm. well you know being an example and, and and showcasing different ways that we can do midlife and what it can look like is is you know a passion of mine just to to put it out there and like you were saying you know find your passions um, no matter where it's where it might be, uh, mm-hmm. acknowledge your 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 upbringing and any issues that you might have of of uh, lack of self belief or um, mm-hmm. but draw on those experience. Have that self belief. That's that's really the the big takeaway. Mm. Yeah. And there's that you know there's that saying that everyone uses about the the you know the the old woman you know and I think menopause you know, that's what you've done so beautifully. But, you know, I I realise now just another challenge, 
get that sorted. We're, we're getting better at getting that sorted if we can. It's it's not a, it might be a hurdle, but it's one we can get over and oh, continue sure. with. Yep, yep, that's exactly it. Now, Kirsty, mm -hmm. last question. What do you hope 80-year-old Kirsty is going to say about current day Kirsty? Oh, <laughs> I'm hoping she's going to say, girl, you exhaust me. <laughs> um, thinking about you. <laughs> Put those bloody fires out. Um, and then as I sit here and I've, I've narrowed my lanes down to, to whatever that might be and I sit here, you know, working diligently on, on one or two issues, having an incredibly satisfied life, um, yes, you exhaust me, but thank you for, you know, doing what you did when, you, when I had the ability. Yeah, yeah, yeah I hope yeah. I'm sitting on the on the beach somewhere or, you know, still being able to work on my laptop and still being very, um, you know, contributing to society in a very meaningful way. That's what I hope. And I'll be thankful for, for me now for enabling me to do that. Mm, of that I have no doubt. Thanks so much for your time today, Kirst. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. We've travelled we've traveled a lot of different, a lot of different roads and paths. And yeah, thank you for sharing. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Joe. All right. See you later, Kirst. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening and sharing your time with me today. I'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcast or your favourite podcast app to keep spreading these empowering messages. Please share this podcast with other incredible midlife women in your world. Join me again next week for another redefining midlife conversation. Thanks again for tuning in.